Amen. Good morning. Thank you. I love that greeting. Uh, it is quite the celebration today, Grace. This morning we had 10 people baptized. Isn't that wonderful? 10 people. And that makes, if you rewind the tape back to May 1st, we've had 14 people baptized at Grace Baptist Church in three months, which is incredible, incredible. So um, I'll say, I said this in the first service. Some of you, I think, were in there. I'll say it again in this service. No one person should take credit for this. Credit belongs to the Lord in all things. Uh, the Lord has worked and moved in lives, and he has seen them come to him. But some of this has been the culmination of some years of teaching at home, parents being faithful, teaching the gospel at home, and then some of those coming from VBS. All you that work VBS, uh, you know how critical that ministry is and those hours that are put in there, thank you so much, are absolutely uh, necessary and needed, I think, to get on board with what God is doing there. God seems to be continuing to use that, so praise God for that. All right, but that's probably why we're down a little bit in here. I think we had a lot of people here went to first service and said we're going to tap out and go home, but didn't realize we were having worship, and, or maybe they did realize and they tapped out and went home anyway. I'm not sure, but I'm glad you're here, okay? So anyhow, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke 22, 24 through 34. It was funny when people were coming in, they just kept coming in this morning, guests and family, and... Uh, one of the people that works the door said, is there another church here this morning? I said, no, but there could be, right? <laughs> All the potential of it. <clears throat> we have been working through the Gospel of Luke, and today we're coming at the tail end right after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and has the Last Supper with the disciples. And what we're going to see happening here is something will happen immediately following the Lord's Supper that does not belong, Okay. Uh, basically what's going to happen is we're going to go from Lord's Supper to dispute. And this is how we know that the disciples were truly Baptists, because as soon as the, the meal was over, they got in a fight, right? That's how any typical Baptist works, right? So we're going to see that in just a minute, uh, something sort of out of the way. But before I read the text, I wanted to share something with you. Is anyone familiar with the website Ship of Fools, Ship, S-H-I-P, Ship of Fools? Anybody ever heard of that before? It's sort of a tongue-in-cheek uh, website, kind of like Babylonian B, if you're familiar with Babylonian B, except they're like the British version of Babylonian B. Well, it looked like in England they were going to outlaw any kind of jokes about religion, which to me is insane. It was all in the name of we didn't want to offend anybody. So in honor of the, uh, this was several years ago, but in honor of the British Parliament entertaining such a crazy idea, Ship of Fools had a contest on their website. What is the best uh, you know, religious joke that you know. And I'm going to share with you the one that won. Are you ready? Here it is. A man was on the Golden Gate Bridge about to jump to his death in suicide. Another man came to him and said, Sir, what are you doing? He said, I just feel I don't have much to live for. I'm going to commit suicide. He said, Wait, before you jump, I need to know, are you a religious man? And he said, Yes, I am. He said, Are you Jewish or Christian? He said, Christian. He said, Me too. He said, Are you... Catholic or Protestant? The man said, Protestant. He said, me as well. He said, tell me, are you uh, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian? He said, uh, Baptist. He said, me as well. He said, but tell me, are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And the man that was about to jump said, Northern Baptist. He said, me as well. He said, tell me, are you Great Lakes Baptist, Northern Baptist, or are you East Coast Northern Baptist? He said, Great Lakes. He said, me as well. 
He said, well, then tell me, if you are Great Lakes Baptist, Northern Baptist, just like I am, do you subscribe to the confession of 1857 or 1912? And the man said, 1912. And he said, what? And said, die, you heretic, and pushed him to his death. Some of you got it. Some of you didn't. Here's the point. (laughs) This is how this goes in. It's unfounded. It doesn't belong there. We have this tendency, particularly in Baptist life, to um, instead of being united on the things that we're together with, we tend to divide out. Uh, One of my friends who's a moderate, I would say a moderate, theologically moderate Baptist, we had two things in common. He did love Jesus uh, and he did love fishing. And so those were the grounds that we could have a relationship over. Uh, His views on the church and on the Bible were different than mine, but we did love to fish, so we at least had that if we couldn't agree on anything else. We were fishing one day and he said to me, you know what the problem with you conservatives is? And I was on the back of the boat and I was like, no, enlighten me. What is the problem with us conservatives? He said, you can't get along. And I said, well, that may be a fair fair statement from the outside looking in. That's what we tend to do, man. We tend to sometimes look, do some comparisons, play this comparison game. And when we play the comparison game, bad things happen. So let's look here at what the Word of God says today. Let's ask this question and think about this. What is true greatness in the Christian faith? What does it mean to be truly great, right? What does it mean to be the goat? Does anybody know what that means? Huh? Greatest of all time, right? Who, who was the goat of the faith, right? Who knows? Jesus Christ, right? He was the greatest of all time for our faith. So let's, let's look at this in Luke and see what he says about what true greatness is. Luke 22, verses 20 through 34. It says here, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The king of the Gentiles exercises lordship over them, and those in the authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Remember, let the greatness among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater one, who reclines at table, or the one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you, As the one who serves, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on my throne, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan determined to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Amen. May God add blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, infallible word. I pray he writes his truth on all of our hearts today because the grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it with me if you know it. But the word of our God endures forever. All right. Why do we like to find the things that divide us? Why are we fixated on this? Clearly, this has been a problem for as long as we have been gathering together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus here begins opening this section here. The dispute is over who gets the honorary position at the table. So they just remember I, I told you how they sat there, Jesus at the head of the table in the middle of the triclinium, and John would have been to his right. The seat of right was considered a seat of honor for a guest that would have been there. Also, it is the seat that the youngest would have taken, and they would have asked questions at the Passover. Why is this night different than any other night? So it's a seat of considered high honor, and people were to gather around them. Judas apparently was close enough to Jesus that he could dip in the same cup that Jesus was dipping in. He said the one who shares. So there are two that are close to them there. So they're arguing here about why proximity-wise they're not closer to Jesus. They feel that they should have the same uh, regard and shake out here that the other people. They're comparing themselves and their position where they're sitting at the table to where Jesus is sitting at the table because they're thinking that the ones closer are to be regarded higher and will in some ways have more to rule and have more authority and have more favor and more of everything. So they're arguing over who's going to sit closest to Jesus. Do you see the problem here? We, well, that's the problem I'm setting up for you. You know, once I pastored a church, and in this church that I pastored, I remember it was a deacon's meeting. Praise God, this is not here. This was another state a long time ago. They were, there was a guy who was upset because he was not named the deacon chair. And I have never seen a deacon wash dishes in such a frustrated fashion after a church dinner as this deacon was washing dishes. I tell you, though, if you ever have a deep stain, you just need to frustrate a deacon and let him go at the sink because they can really take out some aggression on some dishes. And he was just really scrubbing this pan. And I said, are you okay? <laughs> and he said, I just can't believe they called so-and-so in to the, to the chairman of deacons and all that. And I said, I said, why is this a big deal to you? Like what? I said, it's, it's only for a year long. This is not like for indefinite here. What, what's the big deal? He said, well, whenever we have the Lord's Supper, the chair of the deacons is the one who serves the pastor and stands up in front of everybody and, and serves the pastor. I said, are you kidding me? This is what you're upset about? Is you don't get to stand on my right side and hand me stale bread in front of the church? You're upset about this? This is not anything to be upset over. And so, you know, it's, this, is a real, this is still a perpetual problem in churches. Um, who sits by who? Plus, you know, like I'm someone of great importance, right? Anyway, all right. Here's what we know about comparisons, though, when we start playing this game like the disciples did. First of all, comparisons are not compatible with grace. Let me say that again. Comparisons are not compatible with grace. The minute you start looking at other people, the minute you start looking at other people, how God may have favored them, uh, remind, you know, it reminds me of the parable of the banquet here. When we do that, we're losing sight of God's grace. If you remember, the man planned this lavish banquet. Remember, we've already seen this. It's like all these parables, as if Jesus knew this event was going to happen, and he has been preparing us with all these parables through the Gospel of Luke so that we can wade through this together and understand the real problem. And so, yeah, it's almost like God's in control as he's weaving this whole narrative together. Remember at the, at the parable of the banquet, the man puts on quite an exquisite banquet. And what do all of his guests say? Please excuse me, I can't come. Basically, none of them had made the banquet a priority, right? One of them had to go off and see a field. One of them had uh, been recently married, and on and on the list of excuses went. So then he goes out, and what does he do? He says, gather them in, 
from the highways and the hedges. Bring them in, right? And let them celebrate. So you've got beggars coming in here, people who probably hadn't had a bath in weeks. They're all in here and they're eating at this, this rich man's dinner, right? That he had prepared for the other rich and the elite of the community. Now, these beggars, these people that are of lower socioeconomic class, these people who are different than he is, you know, you bring a blind beggar into a banquet that he was not thinking he was going to be eating at that day and wasn't sure he was going to get a meal at all, you bring him into a banquet hall put on by one of the richest people in the community, you think he's going to argue with you about what seat he's going to get in that banquet? Forget it. He's just going to be happy to be in there because he understands the grace of God. And that's the proper attitude of God's people, isn't it? The blind beggar being brought into the banquet hall. We shouldn't be arguing about who's most important or who should be most important in the kingdom of God. We should just be happy to be in the banquet hall of God. And so we don't want to get into this comparison game, right? We don't want to do that. You know, here's what's behind that comparison. What is behind that? The minute you start comparing yourself, what, you th- you're, what you're thinking, whether you're actually honest with yourself about it or not, is this. You are thinking that you deserve something more than what you are currently receiving. And if we had to be honest and take it back a degree more, because here's, here's the Greek word that's used here for their dispute in this passage. It actually comes from the word uh, phileo, so it's like, that's a Greek, you know that word. You know, what is Philadelphia is the city of what? brotherly love so uh, phileo it's it's, uh, that's love so these people the first part of that word is love the second part of that greek word is argument they love to argue (laughs) that's the problem here right that's what they're doing and you've met people like this they just love to argue right and the bible tells us that's actually a disqualify that will disqualify you from the ministry if you love to argue right now don't get me wrong If we get into a theological debate and you come at me sparring and starting it, I do plan to finish it, right? If you start the conflict, I think there's a shepherd obligation to finish it, right? But I'm not going to go around just looking for fights. And in some ways, there's a love here for looking for fights. And what does this bore out of? It is bore out of a heart that is comparing all the time. A heart that compares all the time will be a heart that is positioned for arguments and loving that argument. The heart that compares all the time preaching and teaching and churches will be a heart positioned to constantly be embattled in that. You know, um, I love some aspects of what we have now with social media, but can I, can I tell you, can I point to something, in, and this is just reality, we're going to talk about it for just a minute because we need to. Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms, Snapchat, you post your best life, right? Like you post like pictures by you by the pool or like by, you know, I I listened to an interesting NPR episode. People don't post on there, I'm having a rotten time and uh, I'm constantly arguing with my spouse and I feel like leaving next week, right? And if you did post that, that would be worse than just posting your best life now, right? Everyone would even look at that even worse. But what Facebook and social media has done is it has internally, whether we like it or not, created this kind of a monster to deal with in our hearts of comparison. When your friends post things on social media, this is what the NPR episode points to and I think they're right, when your friends are posting about a vacation they're on, or worse yet, if they're with a group of friends that you know, 
and that group of that person's with a, a group that everybody knows each other, but you're not part of that group and they post about it, people's feelings get hurt and they play this comparison game and they get angry and they get upset and they don't understand what's going on here. And we got to be careful with that, right? We've got to be mindful, one, about what we post. And two, we got to be mindful that we don't become comparative slash moving into a heart that is loving to argue because of that. You know what I'm saying? Let me tell you something else. Spouses, you better pay attention to me right here. Listen, 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 spouses. If you have a spouse in here, did you know a recent study done on Facebook cited that in about 30, it was like 20% when they first did the study, 20% of divorce documents cite Facebook as a reason and contributing factor for a divorce. In addition to that, another, after they did this study, they went back and found a little over 30% not long after that. What happened? You're mad at your spouse. You get on Facebook, you see the, the one that got away, you become friends with them, which my recommendation to you would be this. I'm not telling you not to get Facebook, right? This is not an independent fundamentalist church. But you need to have, you need to have guards up, right? You need to have guards up. So if you have a spouse, right, you need to have, your spouse needs to have the keys and access to every piece of social media you have. Your spouse also, you need to make an agreement like Becky and I said. They need to also have this. They need to have your promise you will not have exes or people that you were smitten with before you married them as your friends on there. That is not going to help you. That is not going to have a good outcome, right? You need to avoid those things, okay? I can't point to it in scripture, but I can tell you based on the research, you're setting yourself up for failure, right? Because you're playing the comparison game. You're going to move into more arguments and it's always fun at the first of a relationship. But remember, I just spent all day mowing yesterday so I can say this with great confidence. My parents are sick with COVID, so I had to go mow their house. The grass is greener on the other side till you got to mow it, right? Not to mention the fact that there's a lot of fees to pay up front when you buy a new property, and those keep going in this case that I'm talking about. All right. So comparison is incompatible with grace. Comparison leads to disputes. Comparisons leads to dissatisfaction, right? Um, I can't tell you the number of pastors who have told me that, you know, I just, you know, ministering throughout COVID, how difficult it was, how people were hard to deal with because they wanted to argue from both sides, how awful it was to be in leadership as a church at that time. And, you know, Satan had a heyday with it. All right. Verse 26, Jesus turns here, okay, and he talks about true greatness, right? We're not to view greatness in terms of money, power, prestige, and popularity, Jesus said that's kind of the way the world views power. That's the way the world views prestige. That's the way the world says that's the greatest of all time. That's the goat is through money, power, privilege, uh, prestige, and popularity. But this is not how it works in the kingdom of God. That's how the world does it. That's how pagans do it. That's not how we do it. How is it found here? How do we determine what greatness is in the kingdom of God? First of all, it's found in humility. Humility. Look for my book this fall, Humility and How I Achieved It by Pastor Travis Tyler. No, I'm just kidding. I asked somebody once, how do you come up with writing about a book on humility? Because that, that technically makes you an expert. Like, how can you claim you're an expert on humility? Well, anyway. Humility is the path, right? Rather, let greatness among you become as the youngest. Now, some of this may be lost on you because... I don't remember, I don't know how it was for a lot of you whenever you were growing up, but um, 
you know, depending on the culture and where you came from, you know, now, like, usually kids eat first, like at holidays and things like that, everybody kind of makes a plate and they go through. Um, when I was growing up, I think kids ate last, you know, I mean, kind of got leftovers or whatever. I don't know which way it is at your house now, but kind of the way it was then. You know, that position is a position of uh, not knowing. You know, I think, you know, some at different points in generations, it's been looked down upon being the youngest. You know, I, I think of that movie, that great Christmas movie, Home Alone, right? Remember when Kevin was left home, he was the youngest. Everybody's like, ah, I just wish you weren't one of us, right? He gets left home, he's sort of despised because of his youth. The lead, and look here, look what he says here. Remember, the, the youngest among you and the leader as one who serves. So he's, he's talking about here, they're all fighting over this one position to sit next to him, right? They're, but, he, but he's saying there is, a, there is an element of humility that is there. And then he goes on to demonstrate how. Look at verse 27. He said, for who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves, right? So he's reclining at table and, the, and he, he, listen, think about this for just a minute. There was no job, really, that Jesus was not willing to do. He came in, when they came in, John tells us how he took the towel around his waist and he washed their feet. I mean, who wants to do that? I don't even like washing my own feet, much less want to wash your feet. That's gross, right? It's disgusting. I almost killed myself one time washing my feet. You know, I fell in the shower. You ever think about that when you're washing your feet, how easy it is just to slip over and then it'd be over, right? But it's a gross job. Nobody likes doing it. It's a dangerous job if you're a big guy, right? Jesus takes the towel. He's washing everybody's feet. That's the lowest job in the room. That's for like the servants of the servants to do. And yet this is the son of God. This is the man who holds the very creation together, right? This is, this is Jesus Christ. He serves in a way that there is, he demonstrates that there is no job too low for him. And, and in church, we have to, if that is true for him in our Christian walk and in the church, we have got to embody this, Right? We, we have got to say we are willing to get up from being reclined at table and grab the towel and serve. We have to do that. Um, you know, this kind of service, uh, stay, this, is a, this is a kind of service that the world doesn't look at and see as greatness. But it is something that Jesus demonstrates is what the path to grace, greatness is. And if this Jesus being the Son of God serves, how much more should we? How much more should we? He goes on here and tells them in verse 28, I think, um, you, have, you are those who have stayed with me in, in my trials. That's worth something here. Another thing that should be pointed to here with greatness is those who stay loyal through trials. That is a mark of greatness, I think. Uh, loyalty today is a very sought-after commodity. People are not loyal to much anymore. They're not loyal to brands. They're not loyal to companies. And let's be honest, sometimes we're not even loyal to our churches, right? Uh, but Jesus says here, you've stuck with me. That counts for something. That's a move in the right direction in this verse, and it is right to point that out here. Uh, the, it is also rewarded by God. Look what he goes on and says here, because you've stuck with me and hung in there. I assigned you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. So there's great reward to be had in this path of greatness. And look what he says it is here, verse 30. That you may eat and drink at my table in what? My kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now let's, let's think about this for just a minute because this is a little bit 
This makes my mind bend a little bit. Like it's kind of, it's like mind twisting and mind blowing to me. He's saying to the disciples, well, a couple of things. One is I think there's going to be some kind of, I don't really understand all of this. Sometimes I still feel like I'm working out all of my theology on the end times, but there's going to be some kind of reconstituted Israel. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it's going to be some kind of put back together, 12 tribes, reconstituted Israel. And, And it says here, you're going to sit in judgment over them. You'll be the judge over them. Another place in Scripture, it says you're going to judge angels. Like those who are following Christ through the path of humility and service, as Jesus is an example here, they've stayed loyal, they've stayed humble, they've stayed faithful, they've, they've, there's no job they won't do, you know, nothing too low for them. They're going to judge Israel? Let me ask you something then. If this is true... Just think about this. Let's put this in perspective for you. Why are you all twisted up about some kind of mean tweet somebody said about you on the internet? If you're going to eventually take your position in the kingdom to come and you will sit as a judge over Israel and over angels, why are you so upset about what somebody blasted you on Facebook about? What does that matter? Does it matter at all from an eternal standpoint? And the answer is no. No, right? I mean, do you think the Supreme Court judges sit every week and fret over who tweeted what about them or who said what about them on the radio? They're in the highest court of the land. I I think they're pretty comfortable in their position, right? It's hard to get a judge out. How much more are those who've been instated into a position of judging and authority that the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator, sustainer of the universe, placed them in that position? All right. I'm going to move to this last section quickly. Verse 31 points to Simon. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan determined. Notice the verbs that Jesus uses here to talk about, or excuse me, notice the verbs that Luke selects to talk about Satan versus Jesus. You know, Jesus asks, Satan determines, right? He demands. He's he's demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. See, Comparison always gives opportunity to Satan. Satan is always looking for resentful or proud hearts and how to twist them and use them. Satan is always at work. But notice what he goes on to say, verse 32. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, you know what that means? It means you're about to fail, Peter, right? And he's going to go on and tell him how he's going to fail. And he's going to fail pretty spectacularly. But he says, when you, when you have failed, I have prayed that you will turn again. And then what does he say? You'll turn and you'll do what? Strengthen your brothers. Here's, here's a couple of pieces of good news from this. First of all, yes, Satan's schemes are bad. Yes, the things he is doing is bad. And yes, the power that he has is much more than we could probably ever imagine or frightfully think of. But Satan is always God's devil. Yes, he's a mean bulldog. Yes, he's a, he's a junkyard bulldog, but he's a bulldog on a chain. Right? Beloved, listen. What, what Peter's about to go through here is Satan's attack for sure. Don't, don't underestimate that. Satan is going to attack him to deny, but this is also the refining fire that God has set in place that will turn Peter from this 
boisterous man who, look what he says here, he'll do. He said, I'll, I'll go with you, Jesus. I'll go with you to the prison. I'll follow you all the way to death. And then what does he do? He turns around and in a short amount of time denies Christ three times, right? He, he is, <laughs> Peter is relying on self. You see, Satan's greatest strategy is to make you and I self-reliant. Peter thinks he can handle what's coming. He thinks he can do it on his own. He thinks he can seek him alone. And Satan is desiring to have him because of that. Can I tell you a secret? Can I tell you a trade secret? Pastor Chris will tell you this because he's here this morning. He'll admit this with me, I think. Our profession, what we do, is one of the easiest to fake. Is it not, Chris? It's one of the easiest to fake. Because you can get up here and put on a show on Sunday mornings, right? You can tell people that, and you can lead, every ounce of you can lead from your own personal strength. I have watched, as I entered ministry 20-some years ago, I had a list of like 10 pastors that I loved watching. And you know, I've watched about six of them fall, not even in ministry. One of them committed suicide. Listen, you can come here and put on a good show. You can fake it here, Carter County. It's kind of easy to fake it here. And all that faking is is just reliance on self. Jesus here urges us. And what he's going to tell Peter here is, when you come back from this, because i got to knock you down, right? I'm going to knock you down. I'm going to knock you down hard. Satan's going to be part of that. Just like Satan was working to get Jesus on the cross, God had greater purposes still. And here in this passage, Jesus is urging him, right? He's saying, you're going to come back. You're going to seek him alone. It's going to be through meekness. He's going to rest in God's sovereignty. When that happens, strengthen the brothers. And Peter's going to go on and do that, right? He's going to tell us about a roaring lion who's seeking who he may to destroy. Peter will will tell us uh, when the time comes uh, about how in his books to be strengthened in our faith. But for now, he will fail his ministry. And here's a beautiful point to be made out of this too. Jesus turns failure into ministry. Jesus turns failure into ministry. He takes the shortcomings of Jesus here and he, he turns it around. He turns it around so that he becomes one of the great encouragers of the church and helpers of assurance. But in this moment here, he's going to fail and fail severely. You know, many of us think the moment comes, right, I've had this thought, particularly as our culture has become more acidic. If the culture turns against us as Christians, and there comes a day where they outlaw Christianity, which could happen. Like, let's just say America falls and red China rolls in and communism takes over, and Christianity is outlawed, gathering is outlawed. If you profess to be a Christian, you'll be killed, right? We all think in our minds back to Polycarp, who, as he was being burned alive, was singing hymns. Trusting Christ, one of the great martyrs of the old, of old church history. Or Huss, who was also burned at the stake. Or Tyndale, for translating the Bible, that we will take our place along the martyrs when that time comes. And many of us think that that's going to be the reality for us. But here's the deal. I like what Fred Craddock, another pastor, said. He was preaching a sermon. He was talking about how he was called to ministry. And he said this. When he surrendered, he wrestled with it for a long time. When he finally surrendered, he pictured what it was like to be a pastor. And he says, uh, this was so different than what I thought it would be. He, he went on to say this. He said the following. 
Um, no, nobody told me that I would, I couldn't give my life to Christ in one big check. You know, he goes on to talk about how he thought that when the moment came and they arrested him for preaching the gospel, and I have friends that have been put in jail for that, that I graduated seminary with, right? Summed up in Canada, I went to school with that came out. But uh, he said, when I, I thought the, the, I'll, they'll stand me before the firing squad and they'll say, deny Christ or death. And I will preach Christ boldly one last time and they will kill me and the widows will cry and flags will be half-masked and statues will be erected to remember me by. But then he goes on to say this. Instead, my life has been little checks over decades. 85 cents here, $1.39 there. Being faithful in the small things throughout my life. Can I tell you a secret here? I can, thank you. (laughs) More than likely, you will not face the fire that Polycarp did and be asked to choose Christ or choose life. Most of us will live our lives, and that won't be us, but we'll be like Craddock. You will have to choose every day to serve and give a little here, a little there. You see, the ultimate question in this passage for Peter and for us is not so much, will you die for Jesus? The question for you today is this, and it's really the question that it always has been, will you live for Christ? Will you live for Him? Will you live, will you live for Him and love Him enough to stop looking at what you shouldn't be looking at online? Will you live for him and love him enough to set up the proper boundaries in your marriage? Will you live, him and lo- live for him and love him enough to give and tithe to the local body? Man, I tell you, I heard a great sermon by Tim Keller this weekend about how we view money as power. And the best way, the best antidote when you've got that virus is to give it away. You've got piles of it, you need to give it away. Don't let it take control of your life if you're struggling with that, if you're taking all your comfort and your rest from that. Do you love Christ enough to walk across the street? Will you live for Him and tell your neighbor who doesn't know the Lord and has never had a gospel-centered conversation with you in their lives that Christ died for them? We have them in your home and host them and point them to Christ with hospitality? Will you live for Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. For this text today, how good, how true, how right it is, Lord. It cuts us. It pricks our hearts. Lord, may we have hearts that are turned to you this morning. God, there are seasons where it is, it is so hard to serve when it is so small things. We, many of us dream, as uh, Pastor Craddock pointed out, that we would be a big event that we could do for you. But God, we know just as you bent down to wash the feet of the disciples, so you call us here today to serve one another and to serve you. God, help us to be faithful in the big things, of course, but help us as we've been called today to live for you in the small things. Big doors swing on small hinges. We need this reminder today, Lord. Help us to see that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Primarily been speaking to Christians today, but if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never trusted him, never had that assurance, won't you come and know him? If you'd like to be part of this church family, I'll be in the back to either pray with you or start that process as we sing. Please stand.